74. Today we are going to be embarking on kind of a treacherous journey as we follow the story of Jonah to its end. And it's, it's, a, it's even in its climax and cliffhanger. Every, every week as we read through it, it ends with what? Anybody? And many cows, right? And it's like, what? Many cows? What is going on? So we're, we're coming to the end of this. It's a climax, and it's even kind of a cliffhanger. And throughout the book of Jonah, we've experienced this uh, enthralling kind of interplay between those eventful scenes of, of a man just turning his heart and his ear from God and running. We see him getting on a boat, heading for the ends of the earth, and just trying to escape the presence of the Lord. Huge storm. God just ordains this huge storm. He's thrown overboard. He's in the belly of the whale. Then he kind of, with a harumph, goes into the great city of, of Nineveh, shares just this eight-word sermon. The entire city turns, and we're here. So we, we see these these riveting scenes and these, these conversations between Jonah and God. And we also, this whole thing kind of raises some complex, deep questions for us. And this week, we're going to work through this final chapter, and we're going to find that it is no different as everything culminates together in what is truly a magnificent encounter between God and Jonah. How many of you, and this is going to be sound like an odd question, but just kind of stick with me. How many of you have ever wondered what it is like beneath, deep beneath the surface of the world? The world. The, the crust. Bob, you have? Good. Yeah? You know, how, how many of you have ever heard of uh, Jules Verne? Okay? Journey to the center of the world. Okay, so th there, this is a story that was written in 1864 by this guy. And the story is about a professor named Lyndon Brock. And he deciphers this ancient rune which says that there is a passageway in the crater of this Icelandic volcano that will take you to the center of the earth. Kind of an odd kind of thing. But obviously... He heard it, heard about it, he figured it out, and he decided he was going to take this trek down to the center of the earth. And on this journey, they encountered all kinds of absolutely strange phenomena. Strange. Strange acoustics where things were heard differently. There were strange gases where things smelled odd. There were strange plant and animal life where things just looked really odd and different. There was even strange water flow in uncommon directions. And as they journeyed deeper and deeper, they discovered this hot volcanic magma at the Earth's core, which causes all kinds of strange disturbances on the Earth's crust. Now, although his, this 1864 book is highly unscientific, it's not one that you go to and just say, hey, let's study the center of the Earth. It's not too unlike what experts actually tell us today what is really beneath the surface of the earth. The center of the earth is about 4,000 miles below where we walk on today. And apparently they're using different kinds of seismic technology. They, they because you can't drill 4,000 miles, scientists tell us that there are three basic parts to the earth's 
beneath the earth's crust. There's the crust, which is about six miles deep. And it is mostly made up of just rock. And then after that is what's called the mantle, which is 1,800 miles thick and is more fluid and consists of about 3,000 to 5,000 degree hot ice-like forms of magnesium and iron. It is just burning, burning hot. And then there is finally the core. The core is the hottest and most dense part of the earth, running up to 11,000 degrees. And it's pretty intense. Many scientists think that all these floods and tornadoes and tsunamis and other wild weather stuff is directly related to what is going on beneath the surface of the earth. So we all look to the skies and say, oh, it's because of the ozone layer or because of this. But there's many scientists that say what is going on above the surface is because of what is going on below the surface. The heart of the earth and the journey to it is not so much unlike the journey to the human heart and what takes beneath the surface of our lives. In a dramatic fashion, this final chapter of Jonah puts God on display, puts God on display as he draws out and addresses Jonah's heart. In his heart, there are all kinds of things going on beneath the surface where he sees and feels about things differently and he's hot, like mad, hot, angry about it. And we see it. And we too are like Jonah, where we have hearts which all kinds of things, all kinds of things are rumbling beneath the surface which affect everything for every one of us. There are things in your heart and your life today that is underneath the surface and you put on a great show, you have a great uh, kind of a veneer, but deep beneath at your very core, there are some volatile things inside your heart and your soul that is affecting everything, everything that is going on in your life. And my prayer today for you and for me is that we go on this last chapter journey together as we attempt to get it beneath the surface of our hearts. And I hope is that you would allow God to just open up your heart. Open up your heart and address some of the things today, just as he did with Jonah. So let's read through Jonah, one through four, and then we're going to pray over it, and we're going to jump into it. Jonah, chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, for he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his own God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. 
So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For they knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. For they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I cried out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise! that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and then called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, 
covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till, there, till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and, it made, and made it cover up Come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant, so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for your holy, inspired, inerrant word. Lord, your words will, will never fail us. These words written down by the prophet Jonah are for us today, Lord. So by your spirit, would you invigorate our hearts, awaken our minds to the beauties of of the gospel found in Jonah. Lord, I pray that we will have transformed 
lives today that are awakened to the, the beauty of the gospel. So I pray for each individual, each relationship that is here, and for us corporately, Lord, that you will move in us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jonah chapter 4 is for those of us who are angry, for those of us, of us who have hard and broken hearts, those of us who are arguing with God because things have not worked out the way that you have intended for yourself or for others. And I don't know if that includes any of you or all of you. I'm pretty sure it is a 99% blanket. We all have issues. We all have hard hearts, whether you want to admit it or not. You have hard and broken hearts this morning. I don't care how long you have walked in the faith. I don't care what your family situation has been, how long you've been in the church, how long you've been with Miss O'Day Church. You, along with me, have hard and broken hearts. And chapter 4 is for us. And so it begins in this chapter. You see that Jonah has a, is strong-willed and is one kind of a man who throws, much like the children that we know, a temper tantrum. Right? You see it. It's, it begins here. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. And you know, we should be doing what right now? We should be doing the happy dance. But what do we see here going on with Jonah? The next verse, verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was ticked off. He was angry. Jonah did what God wanted him to do. But God did not do what Jonah wanted him to do. He was not just upset. Jonah was exceedingly angry. In using these words, Jonah expresses the highest level of anger, displeasure, and fury. Jonah seems like some cold-hearted prophet who possesses absolutely zero empathy, compassion for the lost, the broken, and the fallen. He does not see a city full of image bearers who have lost their identity, who have lost their way. These are not sick people in need of a doctor or broken people in need of a repairman. What he sees is simply dirty, immoral people who are outside of the will of God in need of destruction, demolition, and obliteration. That's what Jonah sees. So what is Jonah's deal? What is going on in this broken, hard-hearted man? Maybe he's angry because he looked and felt like a fool when going into Nineveh. He told the Ninevites that destruction was coming. Not that God would save them if they turned. He should have rejoiced in their repentance. But instead he felt betrayed, embarrassed, and completely indifferent to the thousands of souls in the city. He didn't care for them in the slightest. He is ticked that God did not wipe them off the face of the earth. Maybe it's because he's angry because he has done it right his entire life. 
He has been the faithful son. And these folks, these 120,000 people who don't know their right, their right from their left, have been doing it wrong their entire life. Jonah is the typical older son in the story of the prodigal son. Typical. If you read Luke chapter 15, you have the story of the brother who squanders his entire inheritance, right? His entire inheritance. He sleeps around prostitutes, lives recklessly, and loses absolutely everything. And when he returns, what happens? His father is looking out the window, and from afar he sees his son coming home, and he lifts up his his long clothes, and he does a mad dash, sweeping his son off his feet and welcoming home. His son tries to repent, and his father says, bring me the fatted calf, let's kill it, put on the family ring, put on fresh clothes, let's welcome home, we are having a party. And what does the older son do? The older son does this. I have never, never disobeyed your commandment. Yet you didn't bless me in this way. A sense of entitlement. I have been faithful. And you screwed me. Why do you show mercy to them? I deserve it. Maybe he's angry because He has been, in this whole course of events, he has finally been shown to be faithless and been shown as unmerciful, and he doesn't want to admit it. He's defensive when he is told, when told or shown how to do it right. You, You see here, I pray to the Lord, is this not what I said? Is this not what I said? But yet he says, I, I knew you are a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from danger. God, you kind of, you're showing me as unmerciful, uncaring, heartless, and I'm embarrassed. But Jonah does something here where he, he attempts to justify his disobedience, doesn't he? Jonah found a very creative way to tell God why it was right for Jonah, for himself, to disobey. In essence, he seems to argue that he was looking out for God's best interest. It's as if he's telling God, look, I I don't think that you really thought this one through. I, I, I think you've missed it here, God. These are wicked, wicked people. These are wicked people. If I go and call down destruction on these guys and you forgive them, as you usually do, then what will they think about me? Or what will they think about you? If your prophet is a liar, you give me this message that God is going to bring destruction and obliterate you, and the man of God is wrong because you relent, what is it going to say about me? And God, what is that going to say about you? But here's here's the deal about this and the rest of Scripture and the rest of our lives. Jonah's responsibility and your responsibility is to obey and not to presume. God reaches people in a gajillion different ways. 
Who are we to presume that when God speaks, we know how it will turn out? We, we can only, you can only control your obedience or your lack thereof. We are told to pray, so we are to pray, yeah. We are to, uh, we are told to go, go therefore and make disciples. Therefore we are to When's the last time? When's the last time that you've gone and made a disciple of every nation? How about your neighborhood? We're told to love our enemies. And so we're to love our enemies. We either rest in the wisdom of God or we rest in our own. And sometimes when I really want something that God has said no to or that I should do, I can imagine a million different reasons why I need it, why it would be okay to have it, and why I deserve to have it. And Jonah, Jonah tries to use Scripture to make excuses for his disobedience. And a lot of us do exactly what Jonah does right here. He takes Scripture and attempts to turn Scripture on God against himself. He tries to quote God's word back to him in his warped desire to show that he, Jonah, was right and that God was wrong. See, I I knew that you were a merciful God. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you would relent. I knew you were abounding. God, don't you get it? But yet we do this same thing here. You and I. I, I, I don't love my wife the way that I should because she doesn't respect me. Oh, time to go back and re- read some Ephesians. I'm not going to love my wife until she submits like the Bible says. I, I don't respect my husband because he is not respectable. I won't forgive that person because they did this. Well, if you are using Scripture to turn on God, you know what? Hear this. You are in good company because even Satan used Scripture to try to tempt Christ. The plain truth is this. Listen closely. The Bible is not a neutral book which, you, which one person can read and then take arguments from it and kind of throw back at people. It is an explosive power which must be handled with care. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of God. Rightly handling the Word of God. So if there's a right way to handle the Word of God, there must be a wrong way to handle the Word of God. And Jonah was wrongly handling the, the word of God because why? His heart at its core was wrong and broken and hard, much like ours. So how do we use the word of God? Do you read the Bible to justify your behavior and make yourself more prideful, more self-reliant? Or do you use the Bible to expose your sin and make you more humble? Are you allowing Scripture to read and exegete your life 
and then transform your life. So we look, if we keep on going, we, we see the very heart of Jonah here. You see him saying, therefore, now, oh Lord, take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? You notice that there's a kind of awkward silence there. I wish there was like a couple uh, return spaces in there because there's no response. The, the anger in his heart must be so heavy, his vision so clouded, he does not even respond to the word of the Lord that has come to him again. Do you do well to be angry? And what does Jonah do? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he, when he, he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. You see, what we see about Jonah right here is that his heart, heart is hard. It is hard soil. And the thing about Jonah is Jonah is a very religious, conservative man. Very religious, but he is not very glad in the Lord. Jonah is the guy who obeys, but doesn't really want to. Even though Jonah was obeying God, he had not come to the point where he had genuinely agreed with it. He had heard God speak, he had experienced miracles, and he had been used as this instrument to bring about thousands to faith. An entire city had come to faith because of his eight-word sermon. But he still did not believe. He had been opposed to God's will in the beginning, and even though he is obeying right now, he is still opposing it. And we act the same way. Outwardly, and I want you to put yourself in these, these words. Outwardly, we are doing everything that we think we should be doing. Everything. To the letter of the law. Living the kind of life we think a Christian should live. Heck, we don't even buy lottery tickets because, oh, we, we, I won't, that is outside. Oh, but in fact, instead of doing that, I'm going to give more to uh, Compassion International. Or I'm going to give more money here and there. I'm doing everything. I'm going to be really faithful. I might even have a Bible sitting on my, my kitchen table because it looks really good there. I'm doing everything. And when people come over, we normally don't pray at the, the dinner table. But, you know, we got guests here, so maybe we better be praying here because this is the thing that Christians normally do. I better be serving on that committee. I better be getting involved here because that's what the Christian life is all about. But seek Secretly, way down underneath the core of everything, underneath the mantle, at the very heart of hearts, we are secretly very unhappy and even angry with God with making us do this or that or not giving us X, Y, or Z. For this re reason, many Christians look and act miserable much of the time your heart is hard and here's the reality the unhappy Christian separates himself or herself from the world versus engaging it 
doesn't just respond to God's question. He doesn't even argue. He just stomps off, doesn't he? Stomps off, expecting that things will go his way. He's, he's probably waiting for the opportunity to tell God, See? They're back at it again. You see that hooker over there? I told you. He's going to be back at it. See that guy lying again? Cheap repentance, God. Look at what he's doing now. You see that man sleeping around with that? Again, God, I told you, you should not have relented. 